Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. Good morning. So this morning I'm going to talk about a time period of King Josiah and the prophet Zephaniah. This is around 600 um, years before Christ. Um, and it is one generation before the weeping prophet Jeremiah that Rod talked about two weeks ago. It's two generations before the prophet Malachi or Malachi that Rod talked about last week. So everything you're going to hear today is just prior to three weeks worth of sermon content. So there's going to be a test at the end. No, I'm joking, there's not. But first, before I go to 600 BC, I'm going to quickly shoot to 900 BC. Um, so that you can get a grasp of the political landscape of the time. So, around 900 BC, and just as a disclaimer, I'm simplifying these um, these dates because the very specific years don't really matter that much in the context of things, so if you want to find out specific dates, go look it up yourself later. It's just rounded for simplicity. So around 900 BC, King Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel is split into two, split into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. They kind of bicker with one another and fight for around about 200 years, but in 700 we get to a full-blown war. And Israel sides with, just to the north you can see, a nation called Aram, and they think this is a good strategy to be able to defeat Judah. Judah, however, decides to side with the big bully nation of the time, Assyria. And Assyria comes through and they very clearly wipe out every other nation on the way down. Um, So Israel is completely wiped off the face of the earth. All of the people in Israel are then assimilated into the rest of the Assyrian Empire, and they're lost forever. We call them the Ten Lost Tribes because we don't know what's happened to them, still to this day. The armies of Assyria then get to Judah, and the big bully that they are decide that actually they want all the riches of Judah as well. So they start taking out cities one by one. And they get to the city of Jerusalem after they've conquered a whole lot of other cities. And the king Hezekiah has by this stage gathered all the wealth of the empire. And as the army gets to the gate of Jerusalem, he gives them all of the wealth. And the army turns around and walks away and continues on their way down into Egypt. So fortunately, Judah as a kingdom remains, but it becomes a very, very weakened state by about 700 BC. And if we jump across the desert, all the way over here, you can see a city over there in the middle of the Assyrian kingdom called Babel or Babylon. Now, this was the head city of the Babylonian Empire, which Assyria then took over. And they kind of retained control of this very powerful city, which had a lot of wealth generated in it, by installing a whole lot of Assyrian people in in the aristocracy. And for 300 years, the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, kind of fought inside the city for control of the city whilst these rich Assyrian aristocrats were also fighting for control as money from the empire was being poured in. Now, the armies are in the middle of taking over Israel and Judah and heading down to Egypt, so they don't have the same wealth they can pour into the city. So the kingdom of Assyria instead have to give a little bit of autonomy to this city in around 700 BC. 
And so the city then spends 100 years trying to get from that autonomous state to full independence. So that's the political landscape of the time. So I move to 600 BC now, where we're at, and our story kicks off. Judah is under the reign of a king called King Josiah. And the generation of people that had faced war, besieged cities, and had all their wealth taken away from them, they were all gone. They're all dead. What we had instead was a new generation of go-getters, the Arthur Dailies of the ancient world. So I would have fitted right in, Rod. And they were always looking for the best bargain, the best bang for the buck. And fortunately, where Jerusalem lay, all the trade in the Assyrian Empire going from Egypt up into Turkey, up into Babylon, and even across to Persia, all of that was going through Jerusalem. So there was a massive market for importing and exporting, and it was all under one big common language. So all the Arthur Dailies were investing in buying and selling trade. So it's what I would like to call local globalization. It's the globalization of the, of the known world at the time. But with the importing and exporting market doing so well, so came the desire for the latest in Egyptian hats and Babylonian chariot rims. And instead of having just a bathtub local beer being produced, they wanted some succulent, silky, smooth tannins, central Otago pinots and some and some dry, crisp, lemony Marlborough salves. I had to get some wine stuff in there, guys. <laughs> and so they, they wanted bigger and better, and that was the, the draw of the nation at the time from all these young Arthur Dailies. <laughs> so there was a lot of tension going on because Babylon was starting to expand. Egypt had a lot of power. There was a lot of trade and a lot of money to be made, and I imagine it would have been very similar to, for the history buffs out there, the beginning of the First World War, where you had all these different nations kind of trying to buddy up to different allies and training soldiers and making weapons, and the tension would have been so high not knowing what was going on that all it takes is one assassination. And actually, what we find a bit later on um, just after this, is that the king does die in Assyria and there is massive civil war going on where Babylon as a nation actually breaks away from the empire, so does Persia, um, Egypt stays with them, and then all, this, all these dynamics are going on just from the death of one person. So it would have been from all of that tension that was building up. Zephaniah is looking at this landscape and he's watching his nation buy into all of the cultures that are going on passing through. And he's petitioning people to turn back to God, to relying on God. Zephaniah's name translates to the unseen God, or God is hidden. And I wonder if the name is reflective of a nation who forgot to look at their Redeemer, the God who brought them out of Egypt or if it reflects that God works in ways we often don't see how his hand is playing out. It could be either. This verse from Zephaniah, it's hopeful. It says, don't fear, rejoice with all your heart. Zephaniah doesn't say that God will prevent harm. In fact, aside from encouraging us to be joyful and sing, everything else in here is future tense. 
A phrase often used in the Old Testament prophets is um, on that day or the day of the Lord or at that time. And it's used a lot here. It's a day where God kind of tallies everything up in the future, writes all the wrongs, brings all his children home. Right? It's a very futuristic kind of view. Our friend John the Baptist in the Luke reading encourages people to turn their eyes to heaven despite the incoming calamities that they're about to endure. Right? He encourages practical love, all those things that were read out earlier, around us to endure with our hearts joyful, still outflowing to those around us. Isaiah's the same. He encourages people to stand tall despite their anxiety of the consequences. Right? And Paul, the same again. Do not be anxious in anything. Right? Don't stress about the coming wrath. Rejoice. There is a looming concern on all of our minds, and maybe it's about where our world is headed, where our country fits into that, where we fit into our own communities. I will trust God and not be afraid. Right? There's no God will work things out my way in the end. None of these verses say that. I was looking for it. <laughs> and you know, the, the individuals that heard the words of Zephaniah and Jeremiah that Rod talked about and responded by trusting in God, they were slaughtered or carried off into slavery just like all those who heard those same words and did nothing. There's no, you do these words and you will be blessed as a result, right? here and now. Unfortunately, that's not the case in any of these. You know, as, a, as an introvert and a person who's non-confrontational most of the time, I've, in the last year, had a lot of views that conflict with a lot of other people, and I've often, rather than responding, just broken down their arguments in my head, and it's left me feeling angry or annoyed, right? But our salvation or our happy ending isn't always the way that we think that it should be, right? And it's pretty clear from these verses that at the end of the day, the requirement is that our hearts should not be left angry and annoyed. They should remain joyful, right, as we trust God. That's our lives as Christ followers, right? The details pale in comparison to turning to God for, for our sustenance for a, with a joyful heart, right? To be thankful, irrespective of our circumstances. So what are you dwelling on that leaves you feeling angry or annoyed? Now, I've got nothing particular against Marie Kondo. Does anyone know Marie Kondo? Yeah, quite a few people. But I will say that things only really spark joy when we allow them to. It's a choice. You can choose to be joyful in a situation or you can choose not to be. And in all of these circumstances here, they're not uh, be joyful in the situation which is gonna turn out really well for you. They're all in the midst of fear, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of incoming calamity, be joyful. That's what we're told to do. That's how we obey. Right? And this Christmas, we are reminded of a God who chooses to be small, vulnerable, and human, whose whole life is foreshadowed by an impending doom at its end. Right? Let's choose to be joyful 
that our lives matter that much to him, that he chooses to be relatable, full of looming adversity, pain, unresolvable consequences like many of us are facing in our own lives today. We must choose to be joyful irrespective of our situations. Amen?